Nima Thank you, uh, Jonty. I, I loved that. It was just great. It's great to hear uh, how to preach narrative in a way that tells us how to preach narrative. Uh, and one thing that, 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 that I was so encouraged about is that stories are great and they're so exciting. And um, I'm going to ask you to send me a, a script of the nursery rhyme bit. I think we're all going to dine up on that and just shock our families about what they're singing to their kids um, at, at night. One of the benefits, I was just chatting to somebody at the break, that one of the challenges we have in our, in our congregations is you teach through a book of Daniel, you get about 14 weeks, you've got this in the middle and that in the middle and a holiday between the two. People are there 70% of the time. It's just hard to get the whole rhythm of a Bible book. And yet we're doing that today. And I think it can make an impression on us, which is a helpful and a useful thing Maybe we should suggest to our congregations that we get together for the whole of a Saturday, and we're going to study the book of Daniel uh, today. And I think there is some merit and some benefit in that. I think when John T. and I tried to persuade David and the others on the group that could we approach Daniel in this way, 1 to 6 and 7 to 12, uh, and we have to just sort of stand back from that and say that God has inspired it 1 through 12, and we have to recognize that. But I think it's absolutely true that that there would be a huge danger if what we take away from the book of Daniel is dare to be a Daniel. The sort of courage and, 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 and zeal and, and all of that, that's really there. It was right there in chapter 3. But there are, in Daniel's life in exile, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 5, four or five days out of 70 years in his life, when he really had to take a stand. And it's striking, isn't it? The rest of the time was a consistent, daily, dogged, faithful witness. Great is thy faithfulness. And we hear that almost as a rallying cry to us to be uh, faithful. But what we have every day in our lives is this vision of where God is. Every day we know that God is on his throne and that God is reigning now, turn in your Bibles to chapter... I'm not going to spend uh, half the time reading uh, today. Uh, I think it, it, it was helpful, I hope, to read uh, all of Daniel chapter 7, because it really is a pivotal chapter in the book of, of, of Daniel. And uh, just to, to summarize, chapter 7 is vision 1. And uh, if you think of the difference between... A, some of you will be into photography, a wide-angled lens and a zoom lens... Daniel 7 is like a wide-angled lens. It surveys the whole of human history. Uh, four empires over 600 years. And uh, uh, the final uh, beast stands for all empires. And the horn, all antichrists. All those who take the place of Christ. Whether individuals or empires or ideologies. You can have a, a, an anti-God ideology. Secularism, materialism, uh, whatever it is. And above that, God reigns, and he always has. And there was a moment in space and time history when a crown was put on the head of the Son of Man, the eternal God, the Davidic King, the Word made flesh, reigns at the right hand of God. And that happened 2,000 years ago. And there is a not yet to come, and the not yet is the consummation of it all, 
when we will live with Jesus Christ forever in the new uh, creation. That's the gist of Daniel 7. Now, one of the dangers if we turn to Bible commentaries, and Bible commentaries are great and they're helpful. They really are. I try to read as many as I can and uh, get as many good thoughts and insights as I can. They're almost forced, though, into long discussions about who the beasts are. And I think you can conclude on that kind of question quite quickly and, and, and try to, to get the heart of the vision, uh, which is the reign of the, the Son um, of, of God. And something else I think we've learned thus far in, in our time is that when you're preaching on narrative or apocalyptic, we've got to really work hard not to sort of expound it like we would an epistle, like this bit followed by this bit followed by this bit followed by this bit. What, uh, what Jonty did so brilliantly in the last session was he just preached to us the turning points all the way through the story, preached the changes, the shifts, the dynamics, the decisions. And with the visions, we've got to get the heart of them, and it needs lots of work in our studies. We've got to work hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. You've got to work hard at it and then get the heart of it and preach the heart of it, preach the heart of it. If I was preaching on Daniel 7, I'd do three. I would preach on the nature of human power. I would try and slow down in Daniel 7, preach on the nature of uh, human power. And then I'd preach on the, the triumph of the Son of Man. And I might preach a third sermon on the inheritance of God's people. Something like that, three big principles. Uh, and then I'd speed up again through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and uh, 12. Now, let's turn to chapter uh, 8. How many of you have preached Daniel chapter 8? Oh. Right, okay then. I can say anything I like. <laughs> oh dear. Um, okay, well, that's indicative, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, so let's see if let's, it's not easy. Let's read it. This is God's word. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. So that's a couple of years after the vision in chapter 7. We're in a very bleak time. I, Daniel, had a vision. After the one that already appeared to me, that's chapter 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. Now, what we know at this stage in Daniel is that the animals are symbolic of human powers or regimes or whatever, and the horns are symbolic typically of individuals, of kings, of people who speak against God and His people. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the sound. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him 
and none could rescue the ram from his power. Now, this is talking about a, a particular individual, a particular time in history, as we'll see. But you'll notice from that description, it's just like the generic description in chapter 7. So the specific fits inside uh, the generic. The goat, verse 8, became very great, but at the height of his power, just when this individual or empire was just ruling the earth, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar did, the horn was broken off. It's just like after you, after you. And its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of these four prominent horns came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. That's uh, uh, Israel, the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. The angel Gabriel. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now, what follows is specific interpretation. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Remember the Median and Persian Empire followed the Babel. That's the after this. Okay? So the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia, the two halves of the empire. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Now that's the first point in this vision. You need to know a little bit of the history of the ancient world. Who do you think that is? Alexander the Great. Now, what's really important is that you do not need a history book to know that. It's virtually all there. Now, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. And, and earlier in the vision, it dominated the earth. I mean, Alexander the Great was one of the, the great military tacticians 
of history. He died, though, at age 32. He's kind of eaten up inside by some worms or virus or something like that. And as, as he gave up his throne, there was no successor. There were four successors. And you can read about this in, in, in history. Okay? It was just big mainstream stuff in history. Uh, verse 22, the four horns replace the one that was broken off, representing four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. That's exactly what happened. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And you get these little statements, boom, like, and the Lord delivered him into his hand, Daniel 1 verse 2, or after this, or but he will be destroyed. The vision of the evenings and mornings that have been given you is true, but seal up this vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, like we are today, was exhausted. And it's striking, isn't it? There's another insight into what the Word of God does to the people of God, what affective ingredient it has. You know, you don't preach a lament like you preach a song of thanksgiving. It's how the Word of God deeply affects people. And as our people gather together uh, on Sundays, uh, and what a Sunday morning is, a Sunday morning is when God's people gather uh, to display to themselves and to the world God's purposes forevermore. It's, it's like a, a scattered outpost of heaven, declaring God's excellencies. And sometimes uh, on a Sunday, we should have our affections raised in joy, but other times, we should be deeply humbled before our God. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. And then I got up and I read the letter from Jeremiah and got on with my job of living consistently and distinctively day after day in Babylon. That's a kind of paraphrase of that last phrase. That's Daniel chapter 8. What do we make of Daniel chapter 8? Trust your instincts. Well, that's less helpful than chapter 7. I think that would be fair to say. Um, a careful study of the book of Daniel is, is our gauge. And I think the best way to understand chapter 8 is to take the big picture of Daniel 7, that God is Lord over all of history, and ask the question, well, is God Lord over the details of history? Is he Lord over this particular period of time that I'm living through? And the answer to that is yes, and Daniel 8 is the answer. Um, if we didn't get the message in Daniel 8, we get it again in chapter 10 and 11, which we'll see uh, uh, tomorrow. So, so Daniel 8 is like a zoom lens in on this particular uh, period of uh, history. Now, if Daniel 7 is God is sovereign over history, then Daniel 8 would be God is sovereign in history. And Daniel uh, 10, 11, and 12, God is sovereign right through history now and forevermore. These are the big kind of uh, big uh, nails that you're trying to hit on the head. Now, what's the message of, of Daniel 
8. So what, what's your heartbeat? Remember, the book is about seeing things for how they truly are. And when you see things for how they truly are, you will live appropriately as a citizen of God on the earth. Yeah? Daniel 7 is the big picture. Daniel 8 is precious to you in the details of life and in the details of the particular period of history in which you live. It is extraordinarily precious if, as a Christian, in a particular period of history, or as some in the world are today, you are living through a very, very dark time. And I think there is merit when you preach on a dark time for the people of God to, to let that flow into people's lives. Dark, dark times. Where is the pastoral encouragement in a book like Daniel when you're talking about this great, great sweep of God's sovereignty and the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In the darkest of times, God will preserve His people. So I would give it the title, I think I've given you this in the note, Hope in the Darkest Times. And uh, Daniel 7 is this great encouraging vision as you look to the future. And uh, the, the, the prophecy of the kingdom, which is the heart of Daniel 7, that's a long time away from Daniel's time. It comes with Christ when he's crowned and it's not consummated till his return. And, and what the vision in chapter 8 is saying, between then and now, Daniel, there will be times when it looks like the light is almost extinguished. And we're back to God's time, 490 years. That's a long time. One of my great um, heroes, is that the right word? No. He, well, mentor is the right appropriate word. <laughs> Dick Lucas in London. I got to spend a lot of time with Dick when he was in his 80s. And he has this sort of famous ministry in St. Helens. But when he came there for the first 10 years on a Sunday, there was nothing. 10 years. And that's it, always been for me just a, a, a reminder that God's time is God's time. And the book of Daniel, much of it is about steady faithfulness until the big time or opportunity or test uh, comes. And Daniel 8 is saying to Daniel, look, Daniel, this glorious kingdom is going to come, but there will be terribly dark times ahead. Now, he didn't know what they were because this was prophecy for him. And no doubt, no word, wonder the text says Daniel really struggled to understand. Now, what is this predicting? Now, this is the chapter, along with chapter 11, that liberal scholarship will, uh, will, will, will need to say was postdated the events it describes. Because it's very specific. Yet, you get the Medo Persian Empire, which follows the Babylonian Empire. One of the two parts of the Medo-Persian Empire dominant, dominates, and you see that from the two, uh, the two beasts. And then that's replaced by uh, the Greek Empire, yeah? and this dominant individual, Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great died, age 32, his empire was split up between his four generals. And you can read all about their names and all the rest of it. Two of these generals dominated, Ptolemy I and Seleucus Nicanor. Yeah? Now, that might seem alien to us, but it's like reading kind of the, the core stuff of, of, of world history today. They'd be all over the news, Sky News, whatever. That would be what you would... Seleucus and Nicanor. And they, they warred between each other. Daniel 11 calls them the kings of the north and the kings of the south. 
And out of these two kingdoms, one dominated, the Seleucid kingdom, and one king rose to prominence, not because he dominated the world. Alexander the Great gets one verse in the Bible. This particular king, this horn, gets two chapters in God's Word, 8 and 11. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes I. I am God. It's a bit like Nebuchadnezzar eh, all over again in the second century BC, 167 to 164 BC. And what he did, and again, this, is, this would be right at the heart of Jewish history, is that he desecrated the temple, he changed the Jewish calendar, he forbade sacrifices, etc. And you can read about that in here. And he was overthrown after a period of three and a half years by Judas Maccabeus in the Maccabean revolt. Now, that's kind of in our history of God's people. And remember what John T. was saying, that's our story. You see, the new covenant is not a different story. It's a, a continuation, a fulfillment story. And that period in history, 167 to 164 BC, and you've got your work to do on a Sunday morning when you say, let me just tell you about Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. It's a bit like we're preaching on Hebrews, which is challenging. And I said to the congregation last Sunday, we are going to get really excited about Melchizedek. And they looked at me and they went, I'm not. And you see, what, you see what, we will get excited about him. I mean, Psalm 110, uh, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's the most quoted text in the New Testament from the Psalms. And you see, when, when you face a congregation with stuff like Daniel 8 or, or, or Psalm 110 or, or Hebrews 6 or whatever it is, what you're saying to them is, are you hungry? Are you hungry for Michelin star dining today? Or do you only have an appetite for milk? That's the provocative nature of God's Word. And when you begin to understand the richness of who God is and who Christ is, that wells up in your hearts a commitment, a commitment to... And you see, in our culture, we're never going to live... This, we're never going to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. We're never going to do what Daniel does in chapter 6, like praise when he's for the chop. Because we know we should. We're only going to do it if we have our heads and hearts uh, full of the knowledge of the sovereignty of God and that he reigns. Now, that stuff is all communicated in this vision. And you have to, if you're teaching this, just take people to a little bit of the history of the ancient world. It's a bit like a ladybird book of history of the ancient world. And say to them, go to, in Scotland, in the National Museum in Chamber Street, you can find three coins, Okay. And I photographed them and stuck them on the screen when we preached in this. One is of Ptolemy I, his head, boom. One is of Seleucus I, and one is uh, of Alexander the Great. And suddenly history comes alive. Now, just stand back from this. This is 600, or when was uh, Daniel written? Maybe the 530s uh, BC, something like that, at the end of the exile. And uh, these events are in the second century BC. And, and it's not vague. It's not like Daniel 7, the beast that, well, the beast can fit any time in history. We're told here, it's the king of Medea and Persia, and then the king of Greece, and then four horns, and there are four generals. Two horns dominated. One horn turned to the beautiful land. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, 
and it nearly wiped out the people of God. Now, you cannot, you, you cannot evade that unless you post-state the book. And it's an extraordinary chapter to give you confidence in God's uh, word. Now, I think it's one of these chapters when you preach it that uh, uh, you, you can't sort of unload all the details. I, mean, I tried to summarize that little period. When I did it in church, we had a kind of history slide of the ancient world, and, and you could just watch people going, oh, and I remember saying to them, I said, come on, do you not want to know your story? It's a massive thing in the second century BC, a massive thing, when the people of God were told they could not worship their God. And for three and a half years, they languished. It was all like the exile once over again. There's a little tiny phrase in chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 6. Among them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishela, and Azariah. Among them, which presumably means there was a lot more people who went into exile. But why just these people who, who knew who reigned and who lived distinctively? And in the second century BC, there would have been a scattering, a refining again. And yet God's people were faithful. And Judas Maccabeus, the hammer came in and delivered God's uh, people. That's Daniel chapter 8. Now, what, what do you teach in it? That God is sovereign, not over history, just, but in history. God is sovereign in the darkest of times. We have a number of people in Chalmers who are uh, mission partners of us in East Asia. And Think of the biggest country in East Asia. It is extraordinarily difficult. At this particular moment in history, and you may have watched the leader of that nation being affirmed for his third term and the removal of his predecessor from the hall of the people and the whole COVID zero policy why? To, to register the people. That's exactly the world of Daniel 8. But you know, and we know, and most importantly, these people there know that God is with them in the darkest of times. And the church will never die. Never die. Now, let's turn from there to Daniel chapter 9. How many of you have preached on Daniel 9? More hands going up, okay? One of the things that we intuitively in our hearts want to do at this conference, at different points, is turn to God in prayer. It's a bit like the transition from Daniel 2 to Daniel 3. You get this wonderful vision, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, you're great, Daniel. But just look at what I've built, this statue of gold from top to bottom. And as God's people faced with these visions about God's purposes, 7 and 8, uh, in the first year, chapter 9, of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. 
So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is 605, uh, no, 539 BC, the end of the exile, the first year of Darius. Darius was one of the commanders of Cyrus, the king of Persia's uh, empire. And Daniel is praying according to the scriptures. Uh, 539 BC is the same as Daniel 6. You know, all the way through Daniel 6, stealing your thunder a bit here, all the way through Daniel 6, Daniel prayed, Daniel. What do you think he was praying? I think he was praying this. He was praying this. And, and, and from the time of praying this, he went into a den and came out of it again. So he's in the crucible of fire. Daniel prays according to the scriptures. That's a good principle per se. And uh, uh, Daniel prays according to which scriptures here? Uh, almost certainly the, the book of Jeremiah. And we immediately land on the bit when he was reading in the book of uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, that the, well, almost certainly, is certainly, it says Jeremiah, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And that takes you to the heart of Jeremiah, 31, 32, 33. Numerous, and I wish we could turn there, numerous references to, to two things, three things. One, God's judgment on his people that would lead to exile. That's the first thing. Uh, number two, that after 70 years, he would judge the king that he had used to put his people into exile and bring the people back to their homeland. Now, here's the third thing that makes sense of the vision that follows this prayer. When Daniel was reading these chapters in Jeremiah, he read about the new covenant in Christ. I will put my, God in, my, my, my law in your heart. I will give you a new covenant in Christ. Daniel was reading that, and then he was moved to pray this prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, I want us to finish with the prayer as our application, but I'm going to leave the rest of the prayer and turn to the vision at the end of it. Now, the way the prayer grows is it's a confession of sin, an appeal to the mercy of God, and an appeal to the glory of God. And I want to finish with that because that's our application at this point in Daniel. Now, the outworking of this prayer in the new covenant is different. But the need to pray with a deep-hearted sense of our sin and our need of Christ never changes. Let's turn to the vision at the end, the most complicated one. And time, of course, is against us, so I can only sketch it out. Uh, the vision of the 77s. Now, what are our interpretive principles? Number one, trust your instincts. So here's your chance to trust your instincts. What is this about? While I was speaking and praying, verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. 
As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. Now, there's so many wonderful little opportunities to go down a sidetrack. As soon as you pray, an answer was given, but there has been a delay before I tell you what that answer is. And that's striking. You know, God doesn't need time to work out the answer. This is another aspect of God's theology of time. He will need us, perhaps, to wait on Him before He gives us the answer. I have come to tell you the answer, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, let me just read that again and uh, trust your instincts. Seventy sevens. So, what does that mean? It means an awfully long time. How many times do you forgive your brother? Seven ti- Seventy-seven times. An awfully long time. It's a big, big length of time. There's a long time, Daniel, before something happens. When transgression will be finished, there will be an end to sin, there will be atonement for wickedness, there will be the invasion into the world of everlasting righteousness, and there will be no more that needs to be said, for there will be the final word. What's that all about? Surely it's about the the invasion, you used the word invasion, didn't you? The invasion into our world of the eternal Son of God who became the priest and the king and who atoned for sin and who inspired his apostles with the last word. That's what's being prophesied here. Okay? Verse 25, here's the detail. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's almost certainly Ezra 1.1, the decree of Cyrus to allow the people of God to return, until the anointed one, Jesus, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So 69 sevens, that's an awfully long period of time until the last bit, the last seven, which is the bit when sin is atoned for. Okay. And that period of uh, 69 sevens will be divided into seven sevens and 62 sevens. And uh, in the first seven sevens, uh, the city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. But in times of trouble, read Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the temple, a time of trouble, a time of trouble, uh, all that sort of controversy that went on in, in Nehemiah. After the 62 sevens, so 62 plus 7, 7 lets the Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. 62 is a long period of intertestamental years. After that time, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end and desolations have been decreed. And what that's probably talking about is, is, is the, 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 
the, obs- the nature of the temple becomes obsolete. So when Christ conquers and Christ atones for sin, uh, the temple becomes obsolete. It's either talking about that or the destruction of the temple in AD uh, 70. And uh, I've not sort of, um, having preached on this millions of times, not quite worked out yet uh, what, it, what, it, what it is. Um, there's a wonderful commentary by Jerome, a sort of great worthy of the past, who at this point says, oh, here are 12 interpretations of this particular vision. And he's not saying the vision. The vision's easy to understand. It's just that verse. And he says, I'm not sure I agree with any of the 12. We're all crying out saying, what's the answer? And then he says, God knows. Okay? But the heart of the vision is clear. Uh, the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed. Now, I think what's going on there is that it's talking about the anointed one coming in that climactic event that comes with his death on the cross. And the temple is no longer necessary. And the temple is destroyed in AD 70. That the language of the destruction of the temple is similar to the destruction under Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8 and in chapter 11. Now, let's leave the wee details there, and you can help me sort them out um, later. Well, you probably won't want to, maybe tomorrow. But the heart of that vision is crystal clear. And remember, this is 530 B.C., And Daniel is being told, he said, Daniel, Daniel, you're praying. You're reading Jeremiah. And yes, the temple will be rebuilt. Yes, the city will go back up. But Daniel, read on in Jeremiah all this stuff about a new covenant. A new covenant. When I will write my law on your hearts. And he takes Daniel forward in his mind. Beyond that great big sweep of 62 sevens, the barren years where all they had ringing in their ears was Malachi, I have loved you. And one day Christ comes. And in the middle of that climactic week, which is either Easter week or the last days, Christ dies at Calvary. And the kingdom of God has broken into the earth. And Daniel sees all of that. And he doesn't understand it. But we do. Now, with that in mind, I want to finish today. And uh, we've done this uh, all through today. Is, is taken moments to reflect ourselves on where we stand before God, our churches, and our people. Now, we live in a new covenant We're not living in the same dynamic of temporal blessings and judgments. The ultimate judgment will come when Christ returns. But were I to say to us, does it matter today whether the church or whether we as individuals or even as gospel ministers have an attitude of humble repentance for sin or not? Of course it does. And not primarily in the realm of justification. Primarily in the realm of sanctification. The godliness of life. 
that we need to imitate that Daniel had. And so this marvelous uh, prayer. Let me ask us all as pastors how, how familiar we are with this kind of praying and how habitual it is within our structures, our groups, our denominations, our churches, our studies. I pray to the Lord my God and confessed, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we are our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his laws. He gave us through his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. And therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, when we read that, we say we have a new covenant in Christ, and we do, and much of that we don't pray but we do pray your kingdom come. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Conform the will of the church to you, will God. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come be our heartbeat as a church. And I confess my sins to you. And this bit, verse 15, Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object to scorn to all around us. Now, our God. And we can read into this, think of your congregation as I think of mine. There's a little anecdote there. Uh, am I allowed? Yes, I am. Um, I've just forgotten what it was. Last Sunday was to be the first Sunday in our new building. And that's taken eight years of being on the road. And on the Friday night, the architect failed the project because there wasn't a sealant on a door and fire regs. And there was an overwhelming sense of disappointment. But that particular Sunday, which was yesterday, we were on Hebrews 6, that 
passage about apostasy. And the message of that chapter was, keep going, keep aspiring to the end. Keep keen, keep, keep coming to church hungry for real food. Don't be content with milk. And we all gathered on Zoom, 300 of us on Zoom. It was so encouraging, they did it. We had no songs, no time. And all we had was, yes, that building's great, but your eyes need to be fixed on Jesus' return. And keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going till the end. And these words uh, appropriately uh, conclude verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because you are righteous, but because of your great mercy. And when you get into your hearts, as pastors, as churches, as Christian workers, Daniel's vision of God, you start saying things like this to God, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us as pastors and teachers and Christian workers, men and women who feel deeply the burden of sin and of disobedience to you. Thank you with all our hearts that we live in the new covenant in Christ with all the blessings that entails. But help us live prayerfully, diligently, and faithfully. And Lord, as we think on Daniel 8, we pray for Christians in parts of the world today, caught up in the darkest of times. Lord, grant to them the confidence and the comfort that you are with them in the fire and that we are with them in the fellowship of prayer and that you will deliver them. And if any of us as pastors in this room or Christian workers are in dark days in our ministry, and we've all been there and often, if we're in the realm of chapter 8 and not in the realm of chapter 7, will you encourage us? And will you assure us that you are the Lord in history, in our lives, in our churches, as well as over it all? Lord, you blessed us today with the fellowship of singing your praises. Do so again now and seal all these truths into our hearts for your glory and for the good of the people we serve. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Nima.